Welcome to season three, episode 35 of the Endotechnum podcast. I'm Alan Hallowell, venture partner at Leading Early Stage Indonesian VC, AC Ventures, and founder of startup consultancy Gizmo Advisors. As we near the end of the year, we feel it's fitting to feature voices that have unrivaled big picture views of Indonesia and Southeast Asia's tech ecosystem, the newsbreakers and the trend spotters. We're thus very pleased to have joined us today, Christine Yeo who is a leading voice in the region's tech and finance media space, having served for the past four and a half years as an editor at Deal Street Asia, covering venture capital and startups. Thanks a bunch for joining us today, Christy. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Alan. You're welcome. Christy, you've spent the near entirety of your career since graduating NUS in Singapore, producing content in the news segment from a variety of leadership roles. If you don't mind, Tell us the highest heights and the lowest lows of that journey so far. Lots of highs and lots of lows. I guess that comes part and parcel of being in a newsroom. Let's start with the highs first. One of the biggest highs I've had was definitely during Deal Street Asia. So I've been here for four and a half years, as you said. The peak really was when I broke a story on Philippines Revolution Pre-Crafted. So some of you may or may not be aware of that particular story. So it was basically, they had positioned themselves as one of, you know, Philippines' first unicorns. We did a whole two-part series, really investigative expose on how they really weren't a unicorn. And that actually required me to fly down to Manila, speak to a whole bunch of people. And when the story finally came out, it really rocked, I think, the entire ecosystem. And there was a lot of mumbling already about how this unicorn really wasn't performing. But for us to really gather all of our sources and all of our material to put that story together was a tremendous task. And I was really proud of the work that we put out. So that was, to me, I think the biggest highlight of my career so far. Best for lows, uh, yeah, there have been lows. I would say, I guess it perhaps was a bit of a disappointment. All credit to CNBC is a, is a great channel, is a, is an amazing broadcaster. My experience there, I think, wasn't really what I expected when I entered the company. I didn't stay there for very long, just probably about half a year. And I was actually making a return back to media. So before that, I was working at a digital advertising company and I knew I needed to go back to media. So I applied to CNBC, but really wasn't what I expected, which I guess after CNBC, it was what led me to Deal Street Asia. But I'm glad that I'm here now. So that is really the short answer to that. With every disappointment, there's always a silver lining. Well, one part of your career that I personally wanted to ask you for my own account, I noticed that you worked with Channel News Asia for nearly four years. It happens to be my favorite native source of news across all of Asia. It's in my mind, an incredibly brave and thoughtful news source. My favorite CNA documentary was called One Way. It follows the Chow family as they navigate the harsh realities as new immigrants from Hong Kong to the UK, and I super highly recommend the series for any of you in the audience with an interest in Hong Kong and a couple hours to spare. But on a more general note, can you give us some interesting color around how such a high quality source of news and analysis, at least in my mind, how did it arise out of Singapore's MediaCorp? Yeah, I tend to get this question a lot on CNA because I think your question kind of implies how is it that 
state-owned broadcaster is able to produce such high-quality content. And when I say state-owned broadcaster, I mean, for those who don't live in Singapore, CNA basically is owned by Mediacorp, which is pretty much 100% government-owned. There are many answers to that question. I think, first of all, I think a good portion of the programs that you see on CNA are actually commissioned and acquired. So they're not actually done in-house. They're done actually by other production houses externally to commission it and then they bring it in-house. Now, that's not to say that all of the material that we've done and all of the documentaries that CNA has done are bad. In fact, actually a lot of them are pretty good. The question is really areas like when you talk about state-owned media, state-owned broadcaster, the level of censorship, the level of control over specific types of narratives that play out in a newsroom on certain types of content, does that actually exist? And that's actually a question that people tend to ask me. The answer is yes, actually, there is definitely a certain level of censorship. There is definitely a certain level of control over what kinds of stories are told and what kinds of stories are not told. Although I think the way that plays out, it tends to be pretty selective, I would say, for certain issues that tend to be more strategic to, say, Singapore's interests. I'm being pretty upfront here. Areas like Singapore's political system, conversations regarding the PAP, the WP, parliamentary sessions. Some of these topics tend to be more heavily scrutinized, but other topics that pertain to outside of that realm, that tends to be areas that I think we tend to do a really good job in. And if you take a step back, what exactly is CNA? I think CNA is basically really Singapore's way of being able to exert its soft power into the region. I don't think there's any other broadcaster that has been able to capture that particular mandate of being able to tell Asian stories to an English-speaking audience. Yeah, there really isn't any broadcaster that has been able to occupy that. And I think CNA has done that really well. And CNA, I'm very proud to have come from CNA. And many, many things I can share. You know, one thing that I really took away with me from that experience was this tagline that we used to have, it was called bringing the Asian perspective. And I think that's something that CNE does a really good job in. Yeah. And I still think they do that very well today. Totally agree. Now, I don't exactly know how to start this discussion as it's a pretty wide ranging and multifaceted topic, which frankly, these days seems to be pretty fraught with strong opinions. But what are your thoughts around the role of the news media in technology? The role of media in today's technology. <laughs> Let's just start off by saying that I do think that the ecosystem is definitely broken, by which I refer to the relationship between government, society, its citizens, the idea of democracy and free press. I think technology has really disrupted a lot of things, disrupted really the relationships and particularly the level of trust. If you look today, the amount of distrust that people have towards governments and towards the media as well has been severely compromised. And I don't think this is something that's going to go away anytime soon. If anything, I think it's gotten worse over the years. And especially in media, I think as journalists, I think we really have to work so much harder now to regain that trust again. I don't think there are any easy answers to this particular question. As journalists as well, the level of disruption has been so huge that I think 
the business of media, the business of journalism as itself has not been able to catch up to the changes that have been taking place around us. I think as journalists, we just have to work so much harder to regain that trust again. This could actually just spawn into its own series of episodes, me discussing this with you as an American. I'm sure there are other markets that have these issues that you're talking about emerging, but gosh, it is front and center out here in the U.S. Christy, bringing it a little closer to our series itself, what aspects of the Indonesian tech and venture ecosystem do you enjoy covering the most? I still think it comes down to really meeting great founders. Part of what I do is talking to venture capitalists and founders and having the opportunity to meet people from various walks within the ecosystem. Obviously, as much as my title says VCs and startups, I actually talk to everyone from the bankers, the lawyers, recruiters. The ecosystem is actually incredibly vast, but it always still comes down to the founders and what the founders are doing. And they drive their passion to do something different for themselves, for their country, trying new things, innovating in new ways. I think that's still the most exciting thing about covering this ecosystem and the sheer pace really of how things have really evolved. I've been here for four and a half years. When I joined, Uber was still in Southeast Asia. And then Masayoshi came and said, one billion for you, one billion for you. And then it began this whole like super app craze. And there's a point of time when I joined as well, you know, everyone was still asking like, where are the exits? And now we have so many exits in the ecosystem and it's very exhilarating. You just follow through all of these changes and see the changes that have just unveiled so quickly. It's really exciting to imagine what's going to happen. Absolutely. I guess this series has probably been going on for coming up on three years. And just as I reflect on some of the initial episodes with founders and those that I've conducted more recently, the evolution has been pretty breathtaking in terms of their sophistication, the mission and vision that they now carry. It's really been refreshing to live through that. Now, how would you position the Indonesian tech ecosystem that you just described, the VCs, the startups, et cetera, relative to others that you cover in the region? I know you have a regional role. Take, for example, Vietnam and elsewhere. What's the compare and contrast? The Indonesian ecosystem, I would say, is still the biggest ecosystem here in Southeast Asia. I don't think there's any way that anyone who looks at Southeast Asia can ever ignore the fact that Indonesia is the biggest market here. It's the deepest in terms of sheer size of population, in terms of market, in terms of number of people, I guess you could say that. But in terms of quality of talent, I know that tends to be a big question even today. But there's no denying that Indonesia is still the market. In terms of the maturity of the ecosystem, Vietnam is an interesting one. For all the excitement that a lot of VC investors have tended to share about the ecosystem for some reason, the deal flow seems to be there, but the exits have still yet to happen. We just saw VinFast have just applied for the IPO. You haven't really seen the level of exit pace that Indonesia seems to be exhibiting for whatever reason. So it just comes across that Indonesia is scaling so much more quickly. Definitely, I think in terms of maturity, even if you look at the number of VC players that have emerged in the ecosystem and how quickly they have grown in terms of AUM in the last few years, it's pretty substantial. Yeah, definitely Indonesia is still the ecosystem to watch in this part of the world. So a follow-up question for you there. What do you see as the Indonesian tech world's greatest challenges or obstacles as we wrap up the year 2022? 
its challenges and obstacles. If I were to look ahead, I think one major, not milestone, but one major event that I'll be looking to was not going to happen in 2023. 2024, actually. So it's the Indonesian elections. I think that's going to be the biggest thing to watch. It will basically mark Jokowi's, I think, 10th year and the helm leading the government in Indonesia. If you look back as well, during these 10 years, this was really the time that Indonesia's economy and tech ecosystem really took off as well. And with him also, he brings together many different business relationships, family relationships from politics that trickles down from the tech ecosystem to the business ties. And all these have been forged during this time. If his party does not win next election, I think it's going to have pretty, pretty huge consequences for not just the economy, but also the tech ecosystem at large. Because a lot of these relationships also exist within the tech ecosystem as well. You're talking about your VCs, some LPs, family office relationships. If you just think also about the recent law, I think you guys may have followed the criminal law banning premarital sex in Indonesia. You know, these are certain issues that I think this government and the government will have to grapple with. How they navigate all these things, I think is going to be very interesting to watch. And to me, I think that's the best thing to watch in the next two years. You make a great point. I'm just reflecting on what was an incredible nearly 20-year run of the Chinese internet uh, from <laughs> the late 90s to the late teens, up until the point that the current regime decided that various actions needed to be taken. And if we think about, for instance, the market cap of Chinese tech companies as a proxy for their welfare and success. In some cases, those market caps collapsed by 80% in just 12 months. So the political surround, the regulatory surround can really be quite pertinent here. And I would say, I'm just a foreigner looking in, but I would agree with you. I think Joe Coey has been very tech-friendly. I appreciated some of his appointments. As we know, Nadim Makarim, the founder of Gojek, is now the Minister for Education and Technology. To see that unravel would be a very sad thing. And let's hope that whether it's his party or his successors, that there remains that broad awareness of what the advancement of technology can do for an economy and society. I want to ask you, You've mentioned specifically how you've enjoyed interacting with Indonesia's founders and VCs. What have been the most fascinating stories that you've covered out of the Indonesian tech orbit over the past several years? The most recent one that we were talking about internally in a newsroom actually was Muhammadiyah. I don't know if you guys are aware, but it's basically one of the largest Indonesian foundations slash endowments. They own and back several hundreds thousands of hospitals, schools, public institutions all across Indonesia. I believe they are number two in terms of AUM. I may be wrong. Definitely one of the biggest in Indonesia. They made the first tech investment in the country, which is pretty remarkable, I have to say. The story was actually done by a reporter in Indonesia. But when I first heard that they made their first tech investment, it's a small investment. It was in a small health tech startup called Zcare, Z-I- dot care, even with seed round even, not even a substantial one. Very significant, despite the fact that it was just a small company. And separately, just hearing as well on the ground, people in the ecosystem starting to venture out 
of Jakarta to some of the second tier cities, whether you're talking about Medan, Surabaya, tapping on some of that existing capital, most of it to do with the family wealth conglomerates, a lot of them extremely eager to start dabbling into tech investing, whether as an LP into funds or directly investing into startups, trying to figure out ways that they can learn and tap on technology to revive and invigorate their own traditional businesses. That to me is something that's really interesting to watch, similar to what we were looking at the Indian ecosystem. Out of the first tier cities, you begin to see the emergence of these second and third tier cities as well. And surrounding those ecosystems, the family offices and the families that were also living in those cities. I think, to me, I think that's something that we're going to definitely look more closely at. So yeah, this is happening on two fronts, right? Muhammadiyah being more of a traditional investor, as well as wealth that's sitting outside of Jakarta. To me, are two threats that are interesting to watch in the coming months. Again, as someone who really grew up in the West, the internet ecosystem has not really developed much of a reputation for catalyzing new opportunities for the long tail, the unbanked, the underbanked. It's been mostly for the middle class and above, whereas so much of the Indonesian story, so many of these fascinating portfolio companies whether they're doing social commerce in tiers two, three, and four, or they're offering financial services to the totally traditional rural segments like agriculture and aquaculture. It's quite fascinating. I think it's one of the more unique aspects of the Indonesian tech ecosystem. Let's go big picture again, Christy. How would you compare the maturation or sophistication of tech news coverage in Southeast Asia with, for instance, Silicon Valley or some of our other peers? nowhere close to it at all. We are far off, very far off. But I definitely look to a lot of the Silicon Valley, I mean, US, Western media counterparts. I frequently read the information is a great resource for me. To me, I think they are still the go-to for all US tech VC coverage. If there's any publication I would like to emulate, it would be them in terms of the sophistication for understanding how VCs work understanding due terms and how the relationships has with VC startups in the ecosystem. And just going back to what you were mentioning earlier about Western press versus Asian press. It's funny because when you talk to Westerners, they come to Asia and they like the fact that things are a little bit more controlled here somewhat. You certainly don't get the chaos and the freedom or the madness of the U.S. media. But I think in terms of the understanding of VC ecosystem, I think that's something that we can learn a lot more in. Definitely still some ways to go, but I hope that here in Street Asia will continue to be at the front of that. Understood. Now, I noticed that some of your coverage of a startup's possible down round recently generated some amount of contention. With the benefit of now many days or a few weeks distance, what are your reflections on that specific episode? You basically covered a startup's attempts to raise money at what might be a down round, meaning that their valuation this round was going to be possibly lower than its previous one. I noticed some of the blowback you got from that. What are your thoughts on that whole episode? The takeaway for me was the immense distrust that people have over the media because I think right after that episode came out, some of you may have seen on social media, there was a huge pileup. 
various people from the ecosystem who had lots of opinions about the way that the media was being run. And it almost seems to be this perception that the media, we publish with little thinking about the consequences of a story. I think that was the takeaway. And so I guess the amount of anger and blowback that that story that surfaced from that was immense. And obviously there was a pile up of comments that followed. Of course, as the journalist, as the media, I would defend our position. People don't realize, first of all, how much time we take. And second of all, it's not a frivolous activity when we decide to publish on a particular story. Not something that we take lightly at all. Neither is it random, but it's actually something that we take really seriously. And which goes back to a point that we mentioned earlier about the amount of distress that there is in the media. And I think that's something that I've definitely been thinking a lot about because if this is something that people perceive about us, perceive about the state of the media, the role of the press is to be responsible to our readers. If that trust is broken, how then can we do better? We must do better. That to me has been one of the bigger takeaways from that whole episode. And as for me and my team, I think that's something that continuously do. We will always strive to write stories that are as objective, as factual, as balanced as possible. And we will do whatever we can to ensure that we will gain trust in our readership always. Yeah, well, I'm hopeful that part of this maturation that we keep talking about during this episode also involves not acting as though the media is guilty until proven innocent. But I very much appreciated how you participated in that debate subsequent to the expression of displeasure from the founder. So thanks for that. So, Christy, under what circumstances have you and your peers gotten similarly called out? And what does that say about the relationship between the reporter and the reported? We get called out quite a lot, not often on a public forum. We do actually get a lot of hate comments and Heat meal from time to time. Usually, of course, this tends to surround stories that are a little bit more controversial and more negative. In the case of the Downround story, obviously the blowback is more substantial because everyone knows that the markets are not doing great. Obviously, it's not a great time for everyone. I definitely can see that and I do empathize with that. But for us as journalists, it doesn't mean that we don't put out stories still our responsibility to publish. Getting any kind of pushback or blowback is something that we get frequently and internally in a team. It's something we expect to receive. So the answer is yes. Yeah. I spent, gosh, 16 years in equity research, which is writing investment research, buy, hold, sell. And I think we could probably commiserate over at least a couple of beers around what incredibly fierce feedback we would get on occasion when we had to downgrade a stock from a buy to a hold or God forbid to a sell. They say the truth hurts. And we obviously, it's always incumbent upon us to get our facts right. And luckily we did it more often than we didn't, but I can commiserate with you on that. Now, Christy, I have seen you burn away most as the moderator of a number of fireside chats at conferences, particularly deal Asia conferences. Christy, going forward, who would you be quite keen to interview that you haven't yet? If there was one person actually that I have not interviewed yet, perhaps it would be Mr. Pandu. Pandu Sharir is, among other things, a general partner at AC Ventures. 
he's an interesting person, I think, for us to feature and talk more about. He's been on the press a couple of times, but I personally haven't actually had the chance to do a proper sit-down with him. He's somebody, I think, who's an interesting personality to watch, I think, just because of the sheer number of things that he has his hands in, and coupled with his family connections, his political connections, the number of VCs, the number of startup connections. He's definitely somebody who has had a very strong and influential role, bringing a lot of things to pass here, the Indonesian tech scene here. He's definitely someone that I think is an interesting person to interview. Now, Christy, I guess hopefully a good wrap-up question. How do you think of the evolution of BC and Indonesia over the past 10 years? And what are your biggest areas of optimism and, on the flip side, concern over the next 10 years? Next 10 years, I've been covering VCs and startups for the last four and a half years, and already so much has happened during this time. I think the Indonesian ecosystem can only grow much bigger and better. As mentioned earlier, I think there are certain risks on the horizon like the elections, but there are so many interesting things. For instance, one thing I'm really excited about these days is the emergence of the carbon market. I'll be really keen to see how Indonesia is going to tackle carbon, climate change as a whole, especially when we know there are certain industries like palm oil, mining, being key industries in Indonesia, what this means for the carbon market, potentially position Indonesia as being a carbon buyer, buyer of carbon credit in the global market through regulation, through investors, through startups, through getting to see some startups actually already beginning to emerge in the last few months in Indonesia. How that comes together in the coming years will be really interesting to watch. So definitely there are lots of opportunities, lots of exciting things, and I think that are on horizon for Indonesia, and I'm just only optimistic of what Indonesia is going to be. Very interesting. These areas that you mentioned, carbon credits, clean energy, effectively would involve indigenous innovation addressing indigenous problems, but with also global opportunities. Very interesting there. Okay, so on balance, I'm hearing a pretty clear note of optimism. Christy, it's been tremendous to have you join us today. Really appreciate your time and insights, and I trust you'll have an excellent year end. Same to you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the InnoTechno podcast with us. Terima kasih. Sampai jumpa lagi.